welcome to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week, we'll hear how old rules about genes and proteins may need some rethinking. Also, what's living inside of bees may teach us some important lessons about human health. First, reporter Veronique Greenwood's story on a discovery that's changing what we know about some of the cell's basic properties. The millimeter-long roundworm C. elegans has about 20,000 genes, and so do you. But only the human can create either a circulatory system or a sonnet. This genetic similarity is one of the most confusing insights to come out of the Human Genome Project. But there are ways of accounting for some of our complexity beyond the levels of genes. As one new study shows, they may matter far more than people have assumed. For a long time, biologists have seemed fairly sure about one thing. Each gene in the genome made one protein. The gene's code was the recipe for one molecule. That molecule would go into the cell and do the work that needed doing. That work could be generating energy, disposing of waste, or any other necessary task. The idea, called One Gene, One Protein, dates back to a 1941 paper by two geneticists who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Over the years, biologists realized that the rules weren't quite that simple. Some genes, it turned out, were being used to make multiple products. In the process of going from gene to protein, the recipe was not always interpreted the same way. Some of the resulting proteins looked a little different from others, and sometimes those changes were significant. There is one gene famous in certain biologist circles whose two proteins do completely opposite things. One will force a cell to commit suicide while the other will stop that process. And, in an extreme example, a single fruit fly gene provides the recipe for more than 38,000 different proteins. But these are dramatic cases. It was never clear how common it is for genes to make multiple proteins and how much those differences matter to the daily functioning of the cell. Many researchers assumed that the proteins made by one gene probably do not differ greatly in their duties. It's a reasonable assumption. Many small-scale tests of these sibling proteins haven't suggested that they should be much different. But it is still an assumption and one that's hard to test. Researchers have to take a tricky inventory of the proteins in a cell and run many tests to see what each one does. In a recent paper in the journal Cell, researchers at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston did just that. They found that often proteins made by a single gene are no more alike in their behavior than proteins made by completely different genes. Sibling proteins often act like strangers. It's an insight that opens up a new set of possibilities for thinking about how the cell and the human body functions. Proteins transact much of the cell's daily business. For instance, messages are sent from one part of the cell to another by a protein bucket brigade. One attaches to another, which then switches on another, which then modifies another, and so on. This culminates in a string of alterations that delivers the message. A protein's shape helps determine what it can attach to and therefore what it can do. Finding out which proteins another protein will stick to is often the first step in understanding its role in the cell. 
Mark Vidal, a biologist at Dana-Farber, has a long history of tracing such protein partnerships on a grand scale. His lab looks at how large numbers of proteins interact with one another. They also study how those interactions might change in someone with a disease. But it can be frustrating to do this when you aren't sure whether you should assume that proteins from the same gene do the same thing. Vidal said, even if we perfectly understand a particular genome sequence, we still don't have a perfect knowledge of the components encoded by the genome. He said the reason is that the good old rules don't hold up. To see just how often the old rules might be broken, the Vidal Lab and their collaborators gathered a set of proteins made from about 1,500 genes. That's about 8% of our total complement. They sorted out which proteins came from the same genes, finding that about 500 of the genes made at least two. Then they ran multiple tests where each protein was given the chance to attach to more than 15,000 other proteins often found in the cell. Finally, they compared each protein's results to those of its sibling proteins, all of the proteins made by the same gene. How often did sibling proteins attach to the same partners? How often did they not? The answer was unexpected. David Hill, a scientist at Dana-Farber, called it striking. He thought the results couldn't be right and they'd need to figure out what they had done wrong. But the results held up. They found that 61% of sibling protein pairs share some, but not all, of their interactions. And nearly one in five of all sibling protein pairs had nothing in common. The team compared the proteins in their data set with proteins made by separate genes. They found that in many cases, the sibling protein's interactions were as different as if they had totally unrelated origins. Neil Kelleher, a biologist at Northwestern University not involved in the research, said this suggests that different functions for proteins from the same gene are relatively common. So it implies that the phenomenon probably matters for the everyday life of the cell. Kelleher said, we don't know how much of the complexity of cells and tissues in our body arises from this, but it's possible these different proteins could be part of what's behind the distinct cell types in the body. Perhaps lung cells prefer to make one protein while another protein predominates in a heart cell. Some diseases might have their roots in one protein dominating where it shouldn't. For example, a 2014 paper implies that certain alternative forms of proteins may play a role in autism. The new study from Dana-Farber suggests that when researchers are trying to understand the biological basis of a disease, they shouldn't assume that it will be enough to pinpoint the genes involved. If a gene makes multiple proteins, biologists will need to deduce which protein is responsible for the problem. Yet it remains to be seen just how relevant the new findings will be for understanding typical cell behavior. Stefan Stamm, a biologist at the University of Kentucky, notes that the study doesn't examine whether every protein interaction they observed happens on a regular basis in real life. Previous work suggests that some of these proteins exist only in small numbers in the wild. But Stam agrees that we're ignorant of a lot of the variety in the world of proteins. He said he personally thinks there are more alternative versions than are being reported. Hill estimates that the team has substantially increased the number of genes known to make multiple proteins. But he notes this is still the tip of the iceberg. The team started with just 1,500 genes. Looking at 10,000, half of our protein coding genes, would more clearly show how widespread multi-protein genes are. The team might also choose to look deeper at a small handful of genes. That would give them a better picture of what their variety of proteins is doing and observe how important they actually are within the cell. 
Either way, there is still much more to know. The complexity implied by this finding may feel slightly overwhelming. How can we begin to unpack the biology of cells and tissues if there are so many different proteins coming from individual genes? Not all that long ago, people thought one gene could make only one protein. But Kelleher said that, in a sense, these results are reassuring. Theoretically, taking into account all the ways that a recipe provided by a gene could be interpreted, there could be up to 50 different proteins per gene. The Dana-Farber study suggests that in reality, only a small fraction of those possible proteins are made, and only some of these proteins behave differently from one another. Kelleher noted that some people think the complexity is too vast, but he's hopeful it can be measured. He thinks it is not beyond reach. You're listening to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. That was a recap of Veronique Greenwood's story, A Secret Flexibility Found in Life's Blueprints. Up next, we'll hear an excerpt from reporter Emily Singer's 2015 interview with evolutionary biologist Nancy Moran. A few years ago, Nancy Moran moved from Yale to the University of Texas, Austin, along with 120,000 bees. Bees are famous for living in large social groups, but Moran was interested in more than just the hive. She's studying the diverse ecosystem of bacteria that evolved along with the bees. This group contributes to the health of hives and their resilience to infection. Bees and their microbiota are just one example of symbiosis. Symbiosis is a close relationship between two species that typically helps both. The relationship can take a variety of forms. Cleaner fish scour dead skin from other fish and gain a meal in the process. The microbes that live in our guts help us digest certain foods. Much of Moran's work has focused on a deeper partnership. Microbes known as endosymbionts are passed from their host to its offspring. Moran and Paul Bauman of UC Davis discovered the nature of these host-microbe relationships. Many pairs have become completely dependent on each other. Some even swap genes. Her research centered largely on aphids, sap-feeding insects that infest plants. Aphids can't survive without a certain microbe that lives in the insect and provides it with essential nutrients. Moran is now doing similar work with bees. Her research could eventually help scientists understand colony collapse disorder, the mysterious plague devastating honeybee populations. Well, actually, I've always been interested in bees. They're the pinnacle of social evolution, really, in the whole animal kingdom. But my interest in their gut bacteria in particular developed when there was a study right after the first colony collapse um, event, which was 2007. There was a study of the organisms associated with bees and attempt to find what disease organism might be involved. And one thing that came out of that um, that didn't identify a disease organism, but it did show that there was a, a set number of bacteria that live in every single honeybee everywhere in the world, and that these are dominating the gut of those bees. And that made me think this is a good system for really looking at a, at a very specialized community that's probably doing something important in bees. Moran hopes this research will help scientists understand how the human microbiome works. For more of this interview with Nancy Moran, read Emily Singer's article, An Explorer of Life's Deepest Partnerships. You're listening to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. I'm Karen Chikurji. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.